Welcome to Media Tribe. I'm Shauna Kinnear and this is the podcast that tells the story behind the story. It's an opportunity for you and I to step into the shoes of the most extraordinary media folk who covered the issues that matter most. You could hear the ISIS radio chatter and someone said they're coming. And it was an extraordinary moment because I was in the perfect spot to capture this single shot. And I think that whole film depended on this one shot, which was the escapees coming over the ridge. My guest today is Oscar-nominated, BAFTA and Emmy-winning director Edward Watts. Ed's documentaries have appeared on the BBC, Channel 4 and PBS Frontline, to name a few. And his films have won over 50 awards, including Best Documentary at the Cannes Film Festival. Ed, how are you? I'm very well, Shauna. What a pleasure to talk to you. Where are you, Ed, right now? So right now I'm sitting in my wife's uh, personal voiceover booth. We do this guardianship thing. So we live in a derelict church and protect it from interlopers. And uh, so, yeah, she set up a voice studio and I'm in the middle of it. Oh my God, that's so funny. I obviously wouldn't expect anything less from you. Listen, Ed, you are such an accomplished director and journalist. And I think our audience would be really, really keen to learn how you got here and what did your journey look like? Uh, It's strange, you know, whenever anyone says that to me, I just think they're talking to the wrong person. It's really odd to hear that someone call me accomplished uh, because I still feel like I'm a beginner as much as anything. I'm still feel like I'm learning. I don't know how far I've come in the whole in the whole journey. And that really isn't false modesty, I promise you. Um, So I began this this exciting uh, career. Uh, left university. I studied history at a university and I left with a really great degree and I thought every door in the world was just going to part ways in front of me and so that I'd be transported to my rightful place uh, on the throne. But instead of that, I went to a little documentary company. I walked in saying, oh, well, I got this marvelous degree. And they said, great, you can make the tea. Uh, Two sugars, the boss said. (laughs) That was his like conclusion of my first interview. And so I started as a runner uh, in this amazing documentary company, which was run by a brilliant guy called Roger Grafe. It's called Films A Record. And it was probably I was so fortunate to start there because it had so many beautiful, talented, interesting people, many of whom I'm still in touch with now. And weirdly, starting as a runner was also one of the best things I think that anyone can do because you are completely trusted by everybody. Everyone would share their secrets with me and confide in me. I knew everything that was going on. I knew who was sleeping with who. I knew whether which program was in trouble. <laughs> uh, I just like drift in and out of these like, you know, really emotional meetings, clearing the coffee. And I learned, I learned so much and people really wanted to help and support me. And uh, yeah, so that's where it all began. It's a great answer. I actually didn't know that. Um, so how did you then become the associate, the coveted position of associate producer on Channel 4's Unreported World programme where I ended up myself as the AP. The golden AP role, Shauna, which you had to. Um, so this is, is, is something I always say, actually, to people who are starting out. I was like a smart bomb for what I wanted to do. I just seen Unreported World in the late 90s. I think I'd even seen the first ever series with Sandra Jordan, who was an incredible journalist. And yeah, she was just a force. And I'd seen her in Bolivia, I think, zooming around Bolivia, navigating burning roadblocks and telling important human stories. And I just saw that. Um, I already had an interest in film, but I was like, that is where I want to be. I want to do that. And so I just kept 
looking for opportunities to get closer to that coveted, the coveted halls of unreported world. And, and so that was what I did. You know, if there was a job that was like working for Channel 4, then that ticked the box because unreported world was for Channel 4. But, you know, if there was something else, it was more entertainment. Even if I was out of money, even if I hadn't worked for two months, I'd say no, I prefer to starve than do anything that kind of deviated from that path. And eventually, after a lot of blood and sweat and toil, uh, I got the gig. Amazing. And then from the AP role, how did you, you know, go on to become a director? Well, it's not easy. As you know, the journey, Unreported World is a hard school, uh, which is a great school, uh, but it's very tough. And the guy who was in charge in those days was the legendary Ed Brayman. Anyone who worked for Ed Brayman will know that what that word legendary contains. But, um, but essentially, I worked for him as an AP for, I think it was maybe a year, and just constantly trying to say to him, look, I want to direct one of these and doing a good job in the day, but always hassling and saying, when can I direct one? When can I direct one? And what was quite good about what he said, he said, look, you got to train yourself, basically. Show us that you can get there and we're not going to support your training. You got to go out there and prove it, that you're worthy of this position, which is one of the best positions in foreign affairs in certainly in this country, if not the world. And, and so many programs have followed it, you know, Vice has followed it. The unreported world really set that style of verite reporting, which we're so used to now. And so I did teach myself. And again, thanks to some great people who were working there, I would like shoot my own stuff, show it to them. I taught myself, I took camera courses. I learned about editing. I was just trying to build up all those skills so that when that moment did come, which was at the end of a series I've been working on, Ed just said, all right, do you want to do this one? And even though I was terrified at the prospect, I obviously went for it. And and no doubt it was a baptism of fire as all unreported worlds are. Where did you end up in the first film, Ed? Well, that was was one of the best experiences I've ever had because uh, I was with an incredible reporter, a guy called Evan Williams. Absolute legend, consummate professional, also uh, good fun and with a good sense of humor. And yeah, and we were going off to Japan to cover right-wing nationalists in Japan, who at that time, weirdly, it, it was the same prime minister, uh, Shinzo Abe, who, we've, who they've got at the moment. And he was, but at the time, he was seen as severely nationalist, taking Japan back down into its history, trying to rewrite its constitution to remove the sort of defensive nature of its armed forces. And he had a lot of weird connections with these uh, right-wing activists on the streets. So it was a kind of quirky, weird, you know, odd and unusual film and story to make. And we bombed off and made it. And we met Japanese mafia guys. And we just had quite an extraordinary experience. And the film, I think, was actually was one of my favourites. It was like the best thing I made probably out of my first five films that I made. Well, let's move on to your other films. And one question that I'm asking all of the guests that we have on Media Tribe is, if you could pinpoint a story or film that you're most proud of, what would that be? The obvious one for me is For Sama, which is the what I've just 
finished traveling the world with and it was probably the film I worked on the longest. I worked on it for two years. And also, weirdly, I was in a very unusual position in that because it was the first film that I'd made where I hadn't shot it. Uh, it had all been shot by the amazing Wad Al-Khatib that I'm sure all your listeners know. And it was it was odd because it felt like as much as anything in that film, it was trying to do it for for Wad and trying to do it for Syria and and for all of us, that there was something so important for humanity, if that doesn't sound too hyperbolic, in what Wad and Hamza and their friends had lived through, but also what she'd managed to capture on film that was so extraordinary. I just felt this sort of burning uh, weight of responsibility that we had to do it justice. And that was a sort of level of commitment, weirdly, that was stronger than any of my own films that I've made, even though I'd been like do or die on all of them. This was just because so many people had died in Syria, you know, because Aleppo had suffered so much, because Wad and Hamza had shown so much courage. It just felt, and I think all the team felt this as well, that it was beholden on us to, to honor that. And yeah, and then it was a the the strange thing about it was when we were making it, it took two years of, of Wad and I working together to get it to the final form it's in. Um, and she'd been filming for five years before we even started. So it was this huge journey. And when we were working together, everyone said, oh, look, the world's bored of Syria. No one cares about this. No one's going to engage with it. And we really thought that it might just, you know, appear in one festival and disappear. So then to see the opposite happen, to see it capture people's imaginations and reach all the corners of the globe, just really gave you faith in humanity. Again, you know, people do care about these kind of stories uh, when they're told well or when when they have a certain essence that can people can connect with. Well, that's it. I mean, for Sam, it was it was just so much more than a film. You know, it was a real call to action for the world. You know, it was a campaign for for truth and justice. How do you feel now, you know, the, the, I hope the world and its mother has seen For Sama. If you haven't seen it, um, you know, shame on you. But how do you feel now when, you know, hospitals and schools in Syria are still being bombarded by the Russians and the Syrian regime? It's tough, to be honest, because it's something I've wrestled with all my career is... Do, does the work that we do make any difference? And when I started out, I very strongly believed that it did. And I feel that uh, the scales, whatever that phrase is, you know, the scales dropped from my eyes during during several films that I made. I remember I made one in Congo about some crimes committed by the Lord's Resistance Army. And it was such a, a horror, horrific incident that they committed. And we had got in, uh, the reporter and I, Nimr al-Bagir, who's now at CNN, had got into the jungle. We were the first people to film these massacre sites where people were literally lying uh, where they'd been killed. And we filmed it all. And it just got no press attention. I think it got the worst ratings of any unreported world in that series. And that was a real blow to me because I just felt that was such an important story. Why didn't people care? This is what someone else said to me on this journey, because you did get depressed when we were working on For Sama, as we reached the kind of apex of the awards campaign, as they call it, trying to, you know, with the BAFTAs and the Oscars and all of that, the regime and the Russians were intensifying their campaign against the last uh, opposition control part of Syria, which was Idlib. And we were living in this world where we were sort of being fated and going to these parties where everyone was like, oh, congratulations on the film. And yet in the real world, 
people were dying and tens of thousands of people were being put to flight. And it was, it was almost impossible for me to square that circle, let alone Wad and Hamza. And in that moment, when I was feeling quite depressed, I guess, about our ability to affect things, I met some complete random in LA. And he just said this thing, he said, you know, you don't, it may not like directly make that influence, like stop the bombing that minute. But in some way, what we do, these films that we make enters the consciousness of people. And, you know, someone who saw For Summer, maybe even someone who's like a teenager now, maybe in 20 years, they'll be inspired to, I don't know, like be the next Secretary General of the UN or something like that. You know, you just don't know how your work can affect people uh, at a deep level. And you just have to get used to the fact that if you're doing your work with integrity and with a good conscience, that it will make a difference, even if you can't necessarily see it yourself. You've said that in, in, in such a profound way. I remember you and I at a, a protest. I think it was obviously 2016, but it was a protest about Aleppo in London. We weren't supposed to be there because I think we'd directly <laughs> been told not to do protests, but we, we met up anyway. But, 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 you know, journalism and activism for me as well, it's, it's really important if you're going to make these films and tell these stories that they have to have impact. It, it kind of begs the question, do you think, you know, there's, there's such a crossover between journalism and activism? Is that a line that we should cross or not cross? Yeah, I mean, I think impact is a great word for it. And activism, it's interesting. I think one of my very strong feelings is that we have come to a path, like journalists in general, have come to a path where objectivity, you know, this sort of holy grail of objectivity, has actually come to slightly distort our attitude to stories. And so that we're afraid to call things out. Like, I think the best journalism knows where it stands morally. And I remember seeing this, the, the example that brings it home to me is when the Russians, uh, Russian-backed rebels, shot down that airliner, you know, and the BBC were putting out, they put out a news report and it went into all the evidence for how the Russian rebels were responsible. And then at the end, there was this whole paragraph saying, oh, the Russian ministry uh, denies it. And they say this happened and that happened. And I just thought, this is how they're getting us. These regimes that are tearing down this international system that for all its imperfections has kept the world in relative stability uh, for the longest period, I think, in like human, in our history. Um, they're tearing at us through these like noble principles that we have of objectivity. And so in Syria, for example, you had people saying, well, yeah, the regime is bombing civilian areas with, you know, fighter jets, but the rebels are also like killing regime soldiers. And as there's some sort of moral equivalence, you know, in a lot of journalism, you know, sometimes you have to say, like in Syria, there is an, a, there is a party there that is responsible for 95% of the civilian deaths that is the one that has dragged that country into the morass of violence that it's in now. And I think we shouldn't be afraid to call that out and to point fingers, you know. And in that sense, I don't call it activism. I think it is about, it, it's about have, knowing where you stand, even though you're a journalist. Yeah, well, I think the point is you can still be objective while also pointing out right and wrong. I think the difference between activism and, and the kind of impact-led journalism that I think is valuable is activism ignores the blemishes of its own side. You know, it won't criticise the side that it's trying to 
promote. And I think that's what we tried to do in Forsama was say, these people are not perfect. You know, they're facing impossible decisions, whether to leave and give up the fight or whether to stay in the fight, but endanger their families and all of these kind of, you know, this, this difficult moral place that they were in. We were very honest about that. And I think as long as you're honest about yourself, then you're in a position to, to go after others. Absolutely. I mean, you were so well known as being the co-director of For Sama, but also you have such a an amazing catalogue of other films. Um, Escape from Isis springs to mind, Ed. I would love for you to tell our audience a little bit about that. The one scene in particular that always springs to mind is, um, you know, you're in northern Iraq, you're you're waiting for a potential release of um, Yazidi women um, who've been held captive by the Islamic State. Do you want to kind of set the scene there and, you know, tell our audience about that film? To to try and keep it simple, yeah. It was one of the most devastating stories I ever covered. It was the story that I'm sure people know about the Yazidi women and girls who'd been abducted and carried off into unbelievable life of sexual slavery in the Islamic State. And I'd, through chance and through fortune, had met this group of very brave individuals who were trying to coordinate these rescue op- operations. And I'd been tracking this one operation, I think, for over a month and a half. I'd met the guy who was trying to organize the operation, but also the guy who was trying to get his family out on like my second or third day in Iraq. And I'd been there for a month and a half and it just kept going wrong. You know, they weren't ready to go or there was rain which had blocked their escape. And then finally, there was this moment where it's like, wow, yeah, they've gone. They're out and they're moving across. Well, not it wasn't even no man's land. It was Islamic State territory. And there was, I think... Uh, there were women and children. I can't remember the exact number of women and children, but some of them were barefoot and they had two days to walk up into the mountains to try and reach safety. And we, it was all sort of complicated things going on because the rescuers themselves were nervous about me going up to the front line because it was right opposite the ISIS position. And uh, all the, the production company obviously were worried about the security risks too. But it was also the moment that you wanted to see, the moment of liberation. And yeah, and so after persuading everybody, managed to get up there, get to the front line. There was a uh, Kurdish forces, like secret service general, who was like, who the hell are you? Wanted to arrest us because we had a camera in this highly sensitive area. We managed to persuade him to let us stay. And then we were just waiting, waiting for these hours. And one thing that people don't appreciate about northern Iraq is how beautiful it is in the spring. You know, you have a vision of Iraq as this dusty, dusty battlefield, but it was green and flowering and the hills were covered in these yellow and purple flowers and beautiful day and so serene. It was impossible to believe that there was a war there, though all the Yazidi guys were like, oh, we got hit by a car bomb two days ago. Two guys were killed. There's the ISIS post over there and we could hear the ISIS radio chatter. And we just waited and waited for these guys to arrive and they didn't. And I was like, well, and eventually I just ran out of things to film. I'd filmed everybody. And I just thought, well, I'm going to try and get a picture of the ISIS post. And so I went to the furthest most place in the trench and I put my tripod down, got my camera, uh, made sure I had the right lens, turned it on, clicked everything into place, put the camera on the tripod and someone said, they're coming. And it was an extraordinary moment because 
I had the perfect lens. I was in the perfect spot by complete accident. I'm not blowing my own trumpet here. It was a complete miracle to capture this single shot. And I think that whole film depended on this one shot, which was the um, the escapees coming over the ridge, basically. And they were just almost like little black dots running down this beautiful hillside. And it was a shot, it, it was a sort of moment that lasted no more than five seconds. You could see them and then they disappeared behind a dip in the hill. And I just turned my camera and I had the longest lens on. So I was able to just grab this shot of these little figures scurrying down. And it was an incredibly special moment. And it also goes to show you that all your training and everything you learn and all you think you know, it does also come down to a bit of a bit of smiling from the gods in order to get what you need. I mean, that scene, it was just extraordinary. It was maybe 20, 30 people coming across the mountain. And as far as I remember, Ed, did somebody from that group have to go back into the ISIS stronghold, the person who had essentially delivered all of these people? Did he have to go back? He did have to go back. And that's someone I've always wanted to make a film about, you know, in whatever form. But but I think those people are lost. I mean, the way that the rescue operations worked was the guys I were with were on the, let's say, the good guys side of the front line, the non-Islamic state side. But they were coordinating with guides and rescuers who were inside the Islamic state. And these guys were a whole raft of characters. There was like a shepherd. There were taxi drivers. There were also some very seedy criminal elements, like a lot of guys who've been running, uh, working as cigarette smugglers, when the Islamic State took over their land, they couldn't smuggle cigarettes because uh, the Islamic State obviously banned them. So they were like desperate for money. And so they started doing these rescue operations. And it was one of those guys, I don't know anything about that particular bloke, but it was an amazing moment where we saw the family run in and we just saw him on his own in all those mountains. And he just turned around and started strolling back the way he'd come back into the Islamic State. And and yeah, I often think about that guy, who he was, why he'd done what he'd done and what happened to him, because we know so many people in the Islamic State territory were killed. I mean, no doubt. And, and another really brutal and, and unsettling scene in the film was a, a woman who was accused of adultery in an ISIS propaganda video. She was being stoned by men, even her father, I believe. And I just wondered, Ed, you know, you're looking at footage like that all of the time. You're either filming it or you're looking at it. And does this ever take a mental toll? It used to. It used to take a severe mental toll. And it's particularly that, in fact, the Congo film that I mentioned earlier and this film took a huge mental toll. And I found it very hard to come back to normal life after those experiences, because I think when you've seen such extreme horror and such extreme human cruelty and barbarism, uh, and then you sort of come back to this world and it's so alien and it feels like a nightmare. Uh, that really took a huge toll on me mentally. And I had counseling for it. I had PTSD therapy. I did the whole shebang. But since those experiences, I have thought about it. And there's, I heard this, uh, a friend of mine who sadly died in Libya, a guy called Tim Hetherington. I heard an interview he once did where he was talking about that. And someone asked him a similar question, like, doesn't this take a toll on you? And he said this beautiful thing. He was like, look, I choose to be there. I don't, I'm not forced to be there. This isn't my home. These aren't my family members who are being killed. I choose to go into this place. And I see the courage of these people who are in that place, you know, their ability to endure and still keep smiling and telling jokes. And, and I'm just not going to let myself 
you know, I'm not going to make this about me and my trauma and, oh God, poor me, you know, watching this stuff or like interviewing these people. And I thought that was such a important message. And I've tried to like live up to that ever since I heard that because, you know, it's not about us and we're lucky. We can always go home. You know, we can turn off the monitor. We can, we can leave. Um, but for the people who've actually had to live it, it, that's their lives. Well said, Ed. And I think I read a term parachute journalism the other day and I felt in some ways that that's sometimes what it feels like, what what we do. You know, we go to a place and report on it and, and document it and then we go home again. You know, exactly what you're saying yeah. there. Another question, Ed, I'm asking all of my guests is, is there a particular kind of bonkers experience that you've had in this industry that you would like to share with us? Okay, I'll give you my most bonkers one. I was thinking about this. So I was filming in Rio in the favelas and the favelas in Rio are overrun by very uh, dangerous drug traffickers. If you've seen City of God, that's like a documentary. It's real. There are kids armed to the teeth selling drugs on tables in the middle of the favelas. It's very hardcore. And we wanted to film uh, a particular guy who's like a young boy from the favela who was a brilliant dancer. And he was kind of trying to get out of this life of like dangerous drugs and crime He'd lost his father to the fighting between the drug traffickers and the police through dancing. Um, but to do that, we had to go down. The drug traffickers throw these massive street parties every Saturday for the whole favela where they do most of their business. And this is where the kid went down to dance. And so we were constantly trying to film this and get permission from the drug traffickers to go into this space. And I, I at the time, uh, had a full head of hair. I looked like a Norwegian tourist. And I had a big-ass camera back in those days. It was like a 305, so like not a surreptitious camera. And so it was not like I could film in there quietly or subtly. So we had to get permission from the drug traffickers. Had an amazing fixer who was about seven foot tall. He was like a huge human egg who like knew all these guys. Total legend called Alan. Anyway, and he got the permission. We went in into this long street full of drug traffickers where everyone's like waving guns in the air in time to the song. We filmed our stuff and we started walking back out the street. And what we didn't realize was the street was actually the domain of five different drug traffickers. And we had permission from two of them at one end, but not the other three. And what was extraordinary was the moment we crossed from this invisible line from one guy's territory to the other, we were surrounded by like armed people pressing guns into my head, pressing guns, like pointing guns at all of us. And the reason why I started panicking was Alan started panicking. I was like, if Alan's panicking, we're in big trouble. And so they were like, what are we going to do with these guys? Anyway, we wait for the boss to come down. He literally was a one-armed bandit. Like he'd lost an arm and he came down. And it sounds weird to say about a drug trafficker, but he was, he was a gentleman. He was just this lovely bloke. He was like, so sorry for the mix-up. So sorry for the upset. You know, you're welcome here. It's fine. I'm sure you're doing what you say you're doing. Uh, I just really apologize for stressing you out. So please come back next week to the dance as my guest. I'm not sure I want to get into the whole second part of that story <laughs> when we did actually turn up as his guest. So that was another great film, Ed, you made um, for the BBC. Um, so what what are you up to now after For Sama? So I'm trying to do something different now. I guess I'm always a believer in keep evolving. And uh, For Sama did a lot of what I've always wanted to do in documentary. It was an example of a film that makes us understand our shared humanity with people who think, you know, we think we have nothing in common with people who are in Syria in the middle of the war. But you see in For Sama, people who are just like you, who have the same values as you. And that's 
my big message and all my filmmaking. Uh, so, but what I want to do now is is write and get into some narrative and features and working with actors. Still, probably telling true stories or stories inspired by truth. But yeah, just trying to move to a different kind of filmmaking where it's not just me and a reporter or whoever zooming around in the dust with a camera. Amazing. Ed, thank you so much for being on our podcast. It's such a pleasure to chat to you as always. Uh, Thank you, Shona. Thanks. If you liked what you heard on this episode of Media Tribe, tune in next week as I'll be dropping new shows every week with all sorts of legendary folk from the industry. And if you could leave me a review and rating, that would be really appreciated. Also, get in touch on social media at Shauna on Twitter or at Shauna Kinnear on Instagram and feel free to suggest new guests. Right, that's it. Until next week, see you then. This episode is edited by Ryan Ferguson. 